Hashtag go cats, man. I'm not going anywhere. This is, uh, this is home forever. So, uh. Westlop Pirates, and welcome to the show. We're here to share our thoughts on Northwestern athletics and college sports with thoughts and analysis from the visceral to the statistical. We run our tailgate with the red pirate flag flying high above as we give no quarter, especially the fourth. I'm Sam Walter. I'm John Lacombe. And I'm Eric Skoskowspo. Well, guys, maybe we should change the uh, change that opening line, you know, as we give no quarter, maybe just the third. Uh, because as uh, <laughs> as we've seen with the Holiday Bowl and then with the Big Ten Championship, our third quarters have been amazing. Um, first off, before before we get anywhere, congratulations uh, to the Cats for winning the Holiday Bowl, uh, coming out uh, down twenty to three at halftime with a just an unbelievable third quarter, uh, twenty eight unanswered, uh, and then a scoreless fourth quarter. Uh, to win thirty to twenty one, um, and and just and yeah, you know, to cherry on top, and with all the the talk of you know Fitz being courted by the Green Bay Packers for him to come out and say what he said at, at, on the post game that he's you know a wildcat for life, he's not going anywhere. Uh, that just you know hopefully will put an end to all the discussion. Yeah, I I I kind of want to. I mean, I think your description of cherry on top is is spot on there Sam because I was in a such a euphoric state at the end of that game that Fitz's commentary just I mean kind of took me to another level but I was I was already there and maybe this is a good place for us to start like I was I was reflecting the rest of that night um aided by a significant quantity of celebratory scotch (laughs) that was the most satisfying Northwestern win I can remember in a long time and and save for the Gator Bowl, which had, you know, the ramifications of winning our first bowl game in in fifty plus years was was a different, a different animal. But we've seen a million Northwestern comebacks. That's been the ethos of this team for as long as I've been a fan. I have never seen us shut the door on an opponent like we did in this game. And that's, and like Sam, that's the one quibble I have with your comment about, especially a third. We gave no damn quarter in that fourth. That's true. That is absolutely true. I've never seen us shut a team down like that. I've never seen Northwestern be a physical instigator like they were in this game against a physical opponent. Like, like games against Wisconsin are the only, the only other example I can think of. Like, sure. We, we out physical Illinois, um, Maybe, you know Indiana, maybe Purdue, etc. I've never Utah, a team that is known for how physical and intense and hard hitting and relentless that they are. We absolutely slammed the door in their face and beat them at their own game in that second half. Absolutely, uh, I, I couldn't agree more. First of all, I apologize for the slight difference in audio. I'm down in Florida; don't have my full equipment. I will mention though that because I'm down in Florida, um, there were. An incredibly amount and and an incredible amount of confused and probably a little scared people in the Florida bar that my family was in for <laughs> this game, uh, wondering what the heck was going on. A bunch of people who just wanted a nice New Year's Eve out. Uh, and then the third quarter happened and they thought that there were like four purple clad insane people sitting down at the end of the bar um, and your child doesn't count oh, oh yeah well and 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 yeah four and a half with the half running around non-stop and screaming regardless of how well the cats were doing but <laughs> uh, but i mean you're absolutely right scuzz i think i will say um and we could phrase it this way i don't want to say lucky i will say sometimes when you've got a giant pile of dynamite waiting to go off you need a spark to set that dynamite off. And very the, fair. And you could say that that spark was Blake Gallagher's interception. Um, you could say that it was Gaza's forced fumble. But the state of Massachusetts going off in this game between Gallagher and Gaziano. Um, but it's once that started um, and once you had the McGee call, which – Thank you, Gus Johnson. That will live in all of our minds forever. And he didn't call uh, us Wisconsin, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> this, this one was better. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Gus. Um, 
the from that point on, it was one of the most blinding blitzkriegs I've ever seen. Um, and you mentioned it, Utah, super physical team. That was apparent from the get go. Um, and I mean, their their defense shut us down. And to be fair, their defense never really rolled over. We had a couple big plays in the second half. I would say we put together one great sustained drive in the second half, the drive that ended with the Riley Lee's um, wildcat run in. Um, and then, you know, we had the big play um, from the notorious RCB. And then a lot of the other stuff was, I mean, well, we'll, we'll spend ample time on the Trey clock play. I'm sure but, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll go deep there. But I think, you know, Utah's defense never really did roll over. And in the first half, they were, you know, really physical and really bringing it and were fired up. And on the flip side, and I know we all wanted to get into this, um, we were befuddled at the beginning. And the reason we were befuddled was defensively, I mean, was because of a player who we spent precious little time talking about, and we apologized for it, in our lead-up to the game because we didn't think he was going to play. And that is backup quarterback Jason Shelley, who came in and did a couple of things. One, he showed he is a backup-level quarterback capable of throwing multiple interceptions and having brutal fumbles. The other thing he showed is he's a fast SOB. And that, we all know, is the worst kind of quarterback for Northwestern to play. We've talked about it forever. The guys who get around the pocket, who are squirrely, who will take off on run on you, have given us fits in the past. And that is what happened at the start of this game. Yeah, 100%. I think think at one point I texted you guys with the comment like, Man, we we probably would have been better off if Tyler Huntley had been had been starting because it would have you know we we talked about Utah's RPO game we talked about um, how we needed to get to the quarterback and and the percentage like I think it was ten percent of dropbacks that he got sacked on this year Huntley did that was not the situation with Shelley we were trying to contain him in the first half with a three three five which did not work at all. Um, in, in in my head, he ran a lot more than seven times, um, but he only ran seven times in the first in the first half. Three of those times, though, went for 12, 15, and seventeen yards, and that just completely destroyed our defense. Because um, while we were trying to figure out what to do about that, receivers were running free. We had miscommunications in the secondary. You know, Montre Hardage not being able to play in this game um, on top of Nate Hall, on top of Jordan Thompson, like that certainly didn't help things. But we just seemed out of sync. And it was funny, I was listening back to our to our preview pod earlier today, and John, you talked about like the Duke game at the beginning of the year and how in that game Duke executed really, really well on their first handful of possessions, and by the time our defense was able to adjust and figure it out and shut the door. We were ne- like, it was too late. Our offense couldn't catch up. Um, this game started the exact same way. And at halftime, we were all like wildcat nation across the country, just despondent. And it was like everything. It was, it was like, things couldn't have gone worse. And I wanted to highlight, I talked about the physicality, you know, off the top, but I wanted to highlight what I saw as the two major adjustments going into the second half on the defensive side. I can't speak to what the hell the O-line did. I mean, maybe they each had a box of Wheaties and um, watched some, like, fire you up, you know, videos or listened to some death metal. I don't know. I don't know what got into those guys in the second half. What I do know is that on the the defensive side, we stopped stopped with the three-man front and we went to a four-man front, and that four-man front played spectacular contain around Jason Shelley. He did not run for more. I think he ran twice in the entire second half. And one of those was for six yards and one of them was for zero. We got to him. We pressured him. We made him uncomfortable. He started throwing a lot of incompletions at the same time. We stopped giving the cushion in the secondary and just started pummeling the wide receivers, the physicality, and, and the intensity that our defensive secondary brought in that second half. I mean, maybe it was just, you know, like they got a talking to and, 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 and they brought a different attitude 
to me, it felt like an adjustment and in a different way to attack Utah. And we saw the incompletions start to pile up. And that, to me, those two factors were, you know, obviously we needed the spark. We needed the points on the offensive side. But those two factors, to me, are what changed the game and enabled that to happen. It's also interesting, um, as the weather deteriorated, uh, it, it really seemed to, you know, the the tide it, it almost seemed, galvanized. Yeah, us. It, it, the tide kind of shifted in our favor. Now it, it's not like Utah is the this warm weather, hot climate. I mean that they're, they're they, in the mountains. They ain't the hurricanes. <laughs> no, it, exactly. <laughs> but um, for for whatever reason, like we adjusted, and it was interesting. Um, Joel Klatt was talking about in the first half how when you're wearing the the receivers gloves and it's wet. You you can't hold the ball anymore. And uh, coming out of halftime, you saw Cam Green lost the gloves, and a couple other guys lost the gloves. And all of a sudden, they're able to to hold onto the ball much better in the in the wet. Um, and I I wonder I I didn't notice if the the Utah guys lost the gloves as well. But um, you know, it was, a, it was a really great point by Clatt, who you know was, was talking about that. And it was it was nice to see that we were we were able to make that adjustment. Um, and it, that wasn't what, you know, kind of turned the tide. Uh, but it was definitely a, sort of an interesting little thing that I noticed. But, uh, yeah. So, well, and an, an, another one that was the thing that really jumped out to me along the same lines. Jason Shelley was wearing a visor for the first, like, I'd say 60, 70 percent of the game. And I was looking at it being like, can he see? Like it, the the amount of water, I was like, first of all, why is this on to begin with? And he had it off by the fourth quarter. But I remember looking at his visor, being like, how can he possibly see out of that? I can barely see his face through that thing. Um, but and I will say, right, you have the weather, and in the first half, Jason Shelley, you could see him. He was cocky. He's smiling on the sidelines. Things were going great for him. Then he came out through a, a ridiculous interception. Where like I mean I mean it was, I mean, it was a gorgeous I'll, pass to Gallagher. I mean, give him was... credit. Blake Gallagher was wide open and he found <laughs> the man. So the so and then the fumble you know gaslit him up. And after that, I think it was wet, and I think he started climbing in his own head. He's a true freshman. I don't think we mentioned that. No, he, we talked he, about he's a redshirt freshman, or well, redshirt freshman. But but like this, he's started what four games, five games, games for yeah. them, four games for them. Um, so that. That's where my comment earlier about you know maybe being better off with Tyler Huntley kind of falls apart because you know his his lack of of experience. I mean, exactly like that it, it came to bear and he started to crawl into his own head, like you're saying, John. And and even even with that, he still went uh, twenty seven forty five for three hundred and two. Um, you know, he put up he put up the yards, two touchdowns, two picks. Well, and a big so and so two things. One. Part of that was the guy who we did talk about coming in, which was Jalen Dixon, which was the guy we were worried about who ended up with nine catches for 114 yards. But the vast majority of that damage was done in the first half. And Discuss's point earlier, Trey Williams and Alonzo Mayo are two guys who have been definitely maligned for their cover skills at various points in their career. What they have never been maligned for is their ability to hit. And both of those guys got physical in the second half. And they forced fumbles, and they bottled up the receivers, and that was a big part of the difference. The second half, and we've talked about this before, our defensive line never gets enough credit for what they do on passing downs. We all know they're great on running downs. They don't get sacks on passing downs. But those guys collapse pockets, and even without Jordan Thompson out there, you've got Jason Shelley, who, like we said, is climbing into his own head midway through the third quarter. Things are going haywire on him, and he's being bottled up. And a guy like that who, you know, redshirt freshman, bad weather, things he feels, things turning, and the pocket is suffocating him, is going to make poor plays. And that's exactly what happened. Um, it's, again, like we said, was there luck involved? Yes, but it was lighting that spark. The minute the spark was lit, things just went ballistic. And that is a credit to our defense, 110%. Yeah, I I, I... – saw this I think finally yesterday or maybe the day before but uh, Ernest Brown had himself a game and was recognized by pro football focused as the highest graded defensive player for Northwestern um, I quipped on Twitter like picking up right where Jordan Thompson left off 
the the talent on this D line. We know about Gaziano. We know about uh, Trent Gomes. We know about some of the depth, the Miller, the Miller brothers, etc. The emergence of Brown, exactly what we were what we were hoping to see uh, from this guy based on his pedigree. And there's you know just f- four or five more dudes in that depth chart that are all coming back this next year. The, the talent on D line is astounding that we've amassed, um, and it's young. And it will continue to uh, will continue to be able to run out, you know, eight guys uh, as we get to next year. The fact that we were missing Jordan Thompson and we were still able to do this in this game against a, a good a good Pac-12 team. You can argue like how good the Pac-12 conference is, but Utah was at least a good team within that construct. So um, that I thought really was really worth calling out the performance of Brown, uh, the tenacity of that D line. Uh, Gastown with with a couple of really exceptional plays, um, especially the one I I really want to talk about the McGee return. Okay, go for it. What, I mean, what a cap for this dude's career. Yeah, right. Like like Jared McGee has been a really solid player at safety, but yeah, you know, like Godwin and uh, Cairo were certainly the guys that got the pub and the publicity uh, two years ago, three years ago, you know, McGee, I think came in for, for Cairo when he was injured um, in 2016. And that enabled uh, him to basically be the, the second starting safety in 2017 when we had um, uh, Cairo pretty much playing in that kind of slot corner role almost all year. But McGee was always kind of third fiddle, right? Um, Come into this year, he's a starter, but you're seeing the emergence of J.R. Pace. Eventually, you know, McGee gets injured. We see Willock hitting the field, etc. And he's just been such a, a steady contributor for this defense um, and, and, a, and a solid piece of it for the last three years. To have him be able to cap off his career, not only with, with the shift into the linebacker role to that K-Row spot like I was just talking about, but to pick up that ball... And and let's also let's always call a spade a spade. Like Patty Fisher um, could have picked that up as well as well. And I'd like to believe that Patty Fisher saw Jared McGee and thought that dude is faster than me. And he might be able to score. <laughs> um, th- but the fact that that McGee was in that spot and and able to to convert that touchdown and to me, John, that was that wasn't the first spark. The first spark was probably the the RCB catch on the previous drive um, and the and and a. And a an obliterating hit by I think it was by Riley Lee's uh, uh, to help spring him. Yeah, that that, yard that block back was amazing. But but to me that the fumble return was what really fired up this defense and turned them into the heat seeking missile that they became the rest of the way. Uh, and I just like it's it's kind of a storybook ending for McGee um, in that moment. Absolutely, and and I mean Gaz's ability to get around the end and and make the play. And we've seen him do that exact same thing before. Uh, um, it was, I mean, it was an amazing defense. You talk about Brown. Um, let me send an APB out to you, you know, you more technologically savvy. Westlot Pirates listeners, I need the Ernest Brown dance turned into a GIF. Uh, I need that in my life. The dance that he broke out late in the fourth quarter was phenomenal. Uh, and I, I need that in GIF form in my world. Um, but, yeah, everybody, you know, discusses you. Your point, I mean, obviously we haven't really talked about him yet because he was hurt. Finding out right before the start of the game that Montre Hardage was going to be out was a huge blow, which meant that we were losing, you know, one of our best linebackers, one of our best defense players in the secondary. Um, And I think rightfully so, based on every, you know, relative depth position to position, we knew that Montre was probably going to be the biggest loss of the three. And it was an issue early on, but the defense... You know, they, they put it together. They figured it out. Um, and, yes, to be able to look at – because Nate Hall didn't play, because Jordan Thompson didn't play, and because Montre didn't play, to look at the stat line for this game and every guy who made a notable statistical contribution, and with the exception of Jared McGee, almost literally every single one of those guys comes back next year, which is insane. 
but it's true. And a lot of them have multiple years of eligibility left. Um, and it is. I mean, it, Northwestern fans get excited. This defense isn't going anywhere. And it's why we won the West, and it's why we're going to contend again next year. And, you know, we got some incoming talent. Um, I don't know if you guys saw the video of – yeah, Michael Michael Janzi, who had a beautiful pick six in the Under Armour All America game tonight, and then was put on a throne with a crown by his teammates. is is a really cool uh, you know, video up on that Northwestern football retweeted. Um, but you know the incoming talent we have is just amazing. I do want to talk a little bit about injuries, and I know there was a lot of sort of the national discussion. Uh, about the game, you know, was talking about, oh, Utah had so many injuries. Um, you know, Tyler Hundley wasn't playing. No Zach Moss, their leading rusher. No Britton Covey, uh, their leading tackler. Chase Hansen was out. Um, we, you know, didn't have Nate Hall, Jordan Thompson, didn't have Montre Hardage. And then on the offensive side, we lost both Flynn Nagel and Bennett Skoranek real early on for the entire game. So, you know, I, I don't want to hear anything about oh, well, Utah was, was beset by injuries. We were very equally, if not more, beset by injuries and managed to you know turn that and found new guys to catch balls like Trey Clock. I am nodding vigorously. Um, nodding vigorously because like, I don't think they even mentioned the Nagel and Skronik stuff on the broadcast. They, they popped a little graphic up there at one point, but it took forever before they even called that out. Yeah, and and... I mean, Northwestern fans know this, and I get how, like, announcers would throw Jeremy Larkin in there, too. Like, boo-hoo, you lost your starting running back, so did we. And then we lost, like, three others, and then we found Isaiah Bowser. So, like, boo-hoo. Like, sorry, you lost your running back. <laughs> like, we're playing without our starting running back, two starting receivers, best cornerback, best defensive tackle, best outside linebacker. So, yeah. Don't want to hear any of the complaints. That that more than evened out. As long as we're talking about the wide receivers, though, um, in kind of a soft, I mean, related issue, we haven't really mentioned Clayton yet. And he put in um, what, you know, what has to be said was a great performance. Factoring in, things were going horribly for him at the start of the game. He loses his top two targets immediately. He was he was dealing before that yeah, happened. He was. Like the like the opening drive, he looked great, and then and then we inexplicably ran like three vanilla runs into the center of the of the line and stalled out the drive. But I like that like that's where I the, like the loss of those two receivers kind of explains what happened in the first half. That's true, and and to be fair, again to Utah, Bowser never was able to get going. I mean, he had yeah. the one twenty three yard rush, which was a huge part of the drive that led to, uh, I believe that led to Riley Lease's touchdown. But aside from that, it was just nothing into the line every single time. That's because Utah has a really great run defensive line. And we knew that going in, you know, we, we talked about that. And the fact that, you know, Bowser ended with 70 yards on 23 carries, three, three yards, a, uh, three yards a pop. That, you know, kind of rings true. Right, exactly. And so given all that, given that, you know, Clayton was dealing with a kind of I mean, we'd all kind of gotten away from the feeling of of the two yard gain on first down over the past four or five weeks, four or five games, thanks to Bowser. But we were right back there and Clayton dealt with it and he dealt with the injuries to his wide receivers and he made a couple huge plays, especially in the second half. And and, you know, and as related, you know, Again, notorious RCB play of his career. Oh um, boy, yeah. Um, and Cam monster game, and and I think obviously right. Cam becomes your de facto number one receiver in any situation where Skoranek and Nagel are out, and he performed that way. And McGowan, who I think we would all say is is next in line as for the receivers in terms of potential overall ability, he had the second biggest day. And then, yeah, uh, we well, can call, and, uh, and let's not forget the phantom pass interference call. Yeah, that was that just was, oh, a terrible right. call. And, you know, he, he ended up with four for 45, should have been five for 100. I mean, that that was a beautiful play, and there was not pass interference. That was a phantom call, and that could have, uh, you know, even extended things even further for the Cats late in the game. John, you made the point earlier that, like, all the meaningful contributions on defense are coming back. Look at the offensive side too, right? Like, of course, we're losing Thorson. Nagel 
and Green Green's really the only player outside Thorson that that is a huge loss. I mean, I guess you could talk you could talk about our guards and yeah, offensive our, our line. line as well, but well, as long as we're talking about receive, I mean, from a receiving standpoint, we're obviously going to miss Trey Clock, who's moving on. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, we we've got to talk about it. Um, it's so the great thing about that Trey play for a starting point is Northwestern's run that I would say I I don't have it's either two or three times across the entire McMcCall era. It's something that shows up every three or four seasons or so. In my head, the last time it was run, I want to say was in either an early season game, I want to say against an an FCS opponent, maybe three or four seasons back. Um, And we didn't disguise it the same way. We just walked right out with the personnel and ran it. But the minute I saw J.B. Butler going out to wide receiver, I was like, this is an unbalanced line play. (laughs) (laughs) They don't know what's coming. The beauty of it is um, because clock wears number 39, clock is technically a tight end, which means you don't have to declare him when you get onto the field. As I was explaining to my parents in the aftermath of that play, the key to the whole play is how large a human being clock is. Because as long as you walk him out there and you get him down into a three-point stance, you're just counting on the nearest defensive end, not noticing that the large individual in front of him has a different face than he has for the rest of the game. And as long as you can pull that off, you're pretty much in the shade. And yeah, that play worked completely. I mean, people talk about the safety being really close. I give Clock credit for catching the ball. It was a glancing blow. I mean, he was wide open from the moment the safety was just back there. Well, he's like a he's like a trailer out there, you know, screening the guy off. I mean, it's, it's like a post play in uh, in basketball. Right. So it's like so he's so I mean, he just has that free release. He's lined up as a tackle, but because you've got an unbalanced line, he's effectively a tight end who doesn't look like a tight end. And 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 I mean, I know technically it's not true, but I'm sure he would agree with us. Uh, the play really all hinged on J.B. Butler's amazing acting ability. <laughs> oh. He was not an eligible receiver on that play. He was very much covered up by the outside wide receiver, but he made it look like he was ready to catch the most amazing screen pass ever and rumble all the way downfield for a touchdown and confirmed as much. I think when we tweeted out something to that, to that effect, he immediately oh, responded oh, yeah. that, that he would have scored. And yes, I know he's not eligible, but you know, we could have thrown it out to a wide receiver who handed it to JB Butler. And then maybe he would have been off to the races well, with, well, now, with, with his, with that acting job. He actually did pull a safety up to, uh, to keep an eye on him. Look, I, I I choose to believe that we have a riff on that same play in our playbook where Butler reports as eligible is the eligible receiver out there. Did you see how fast he ran on the on the formation adjustment? I'm confident he could have gotten well downfield. Like he he exhibited some serious wheels. Right. And that well that was part of it too. I realized that after after I watched the play let's be honest 20 to 30 more times <laughs> that when they came out of the goofy formation the goofy formation breaks up really quickly and all the wideouts and running backs run to where they're supposed to be and butler waits a second and then runs out to his position at the last second and right so yes so many things hinged on it hinged on trey clock's girth uh J.B. Butler's incredible wheels and then acting ability. Um, but yes, the ex- the execution, flawless and uh, an amazing result. And for Trey Clock, I mean, Georgia Tech transfer, a guy who we weren't sure when he came in, whether he was going to be a starting offensive lineman, ended up being basically a jumbo package guy. What an awesome way to end his career. And uh, big guy touchdowns, who doesn't love those? Well, and the thing I love the best is what, what the play name was called. I think it's like, that guy going to get six. Or something, <laughs> something along those lines. It was great. Uh, the, the the actual title was "Fat Guy Needs a Six Piece." <laughs> <laughs> so good. It's so good. I'm I'm quite confident Mick McCall didn't name that. <laughs> hey, I don't know. Remember the, the same guy who was out there with his shirt off at the start of the uh, Minnesota games, capable of anything. So I don't know. Uh, but yeah, it was so. 
you know, as we were saying, I think in kind of moving forward, putting a putting a a bow on this. I mean, it was absolutely epic performance, especially from the defense. That third quarter, it's it's funny, you know, we've talked and heard from people since we talked about it about the third quarter of the Big Ten championship game being a life moment. Well, I feel like the Holiday Bowl was like, hold my beer. Uh, you ain't seen a a third quarter yet. Uh, and it was, it it was just insane. 28 points in a quarter for the cats is not something we'll see. We see every day to have it happen against a nine win team that was within seven points of winning the pac 12, um, was just a fantastic moment. And, you know, now we've got 36 wins in four years. We're averaging nine wins a season, you know, for the past four years for the Clayton Thorson era. Um, it's an unprecedented level of success. I don't know how many of our listeners are aware. We So we are averaging nine wins a year for the past four years. And if you break it out, it actually goes 10, 7, 10, 9. This is also the first time Northwestern has had four straight winning seasons ever. The first time ever. So that is the history of this program, and we ripped off nine wins a season for four straight years. It is totally an unprecedented place to be. It's an unprecedented level of success. Um, and when you've got Clayton out there talking about Big Ten championships and national championships and everything, I mean, these guys know where the program was, and they know where it is now. And uh, you got to take them at their word that they believe that anything is possible. Yeah, and it, it's, it's no longer like – Oh boy, that'd be great if you know we could be in that conversation because we are in that conversation now. You know, really, you know the the doubters out there are going to have to you know re- recognize that Northwestern is now an upper echelon, you know, Big Ten West team it has to be. Well, now, like like Northwestern teams of years past, Northwestern basketball teams of years past. Now you got to deal with the success, right? Um, we are going to be a lot of people's presumptive favorite in the West next year. I mean, I know, I mean, a lot of people bring things back. I mean, Iowa managed to pull out nine wins this season. Wisconsin righted the ship, at least to an extent, by putting a thumping on Miami in the pinstripe bowl. But we are a team that is trading Clayton Thorson in for Hunter Johnson and returning just about everything else everywhere other than the offensive line. And that combined with the success this year is going to make us a lot of people's favorite in the West. And it's going to be on the team to, to put that together. But man, I mean, with this defense in place, it's hard to put anything past these guys. I, I just want to put one last little asterisk on that. Uh, asterisk is not the right term, but um, one little, little last note about that defense, John, and that's to, that's to throw out, you know, we've we've thrown out a bunch of names uh, already that we that we thought did really well. Um, some pirate booty, all the pirate booty to JR Pace. Absolutely. Uh, MVP, defensive MVP of the game. Fill that trophy with pirate booty. Overall MVP of the game. Um, you know, when Ibrahim Campbell was a Northwestern, we all talked about. We've, you know, I, th- I think we had never seen a safety for Northwestern who hits as hard as that guy did and was, he was such an incredible weapon against the running game. Seeing what pace can do both in the running game and against wide receivers is like, he was, he was unreal. Um, in terms of the speed, athleticism and physicality that, that he displayed, I, you know, obviously he's John, I think at the beginning of the year, you talked about how, he just makes big interceptions in big games. Like that's what he does. And he did it again, uh, twice against Utah. Th- that plus all the other pieces we've talked about that are coming back. I mean, we are fielding a championship level defense year in and year in year in and year out now. Like, th- like th- those four years you talked about, that's, that's the baseline for it. And he's a player who, you know, got on the field a little bit last year as a freshman, but as a sophomore, he's he's just wrecking the opposition. And the idea that he and Patty Fisher and Willock are all coming back next year and the year after—I mean, it's it's ludicrous. 
I would I was gonna say you talk about JR pace hitting at the start of the game. My dad looked at Willick and was like, "He's a safety," and I was like, "Wait, <laughs> hit <laughs> these." I mean, and yes, we're getting both of those guys back next year. The more you start to think about the potential of this defensive unit, the the more giddy you get. It's just it's stacked. The amount of big time recruits in the 2017 2018 classes and even the true freshman 19 who are really going to have to fight to see the field at all it just makes me giddy like it is it's an excellence factory on the on the defensive side of the ball right now um get excited i mean it's it's a big west caliber championship caliber defense and will be for the future it's just about putting it all together i i don't want to you know, put a damper on this but i do just kind of want to throw one thing out there at Stanford, UNLV, Michigan State, at Wisconsin, at Nebraska, Ohio State, Iowa, at Indiana, Purdue, UMass, Minnesota, at Illinois. First half of next year's schedule is uh, is going to be it's going to be rough. Um, is that harder than our schedule this year? At Wisconsin and Nebraska. You know, it's Wisconsin, Nebraska, Michigan State, Wisconsin, Nebraska, Ohio State in four consecutive weeks. That's rough. Well, I guess yeah. there, there there is a bye between Nebraska and Ohio State. So, I mean, this year we played Wisconsin, Notre Dame, and Iowa three consecutive weeks, and then had to go out on the road at Minnesota the week after. You had Michigan, Michigan State, Nebraska three in a row earlier in the year. I guess I I'm I'm not to me Stanford is not nearly the the, the difficulty they were. Four years ago, um, but body clock, man. Well, you know, body <laughs> clock. I guess. Uh, hey, we we won at Cal a few yeah, years back, true, right? Um, you know, Michigan State lost a bowl game seven to six to a team that is not a defensive powerhouse. Like, there's like trading Michigan for Ohio State. Sure, that's a little bit of an upgrade. I don't. I mean, you like Duke and Notre Dame versus. Uh, what was it? UNLV, UNLV and UMass and, and UMass and Stanford. I mean, that doesn't it doesn't feel any harder than this year. Maybe some of the locations are a little bit tougher. Yeah, I, I think, I think expect, we, that that's sort of what was what's jumping at me is the fact that you know it's at Wisconsin, at Nebraska, and then home for Ohio State. You know, in in three consecutive games. That, but I mean, to your point, you know that how different is that from Wisconsin, Notre Dame at Iowa? No. So, I mean, I, again, we're going to have half of a year to drill down on all of this stuff. I mean, I look at that schedule. You guys are absolutely right. I mean, immediately my mind goes to like Gunnar Vogel, Nick Urban, time to make the leap boys. Like you guys are the guys. It's the guys who are going to be plugging the holes that the departing seniors have left on the line. Um, Tommy Doles is one big hole to fill. And, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be the line. We're going to be talking about it ad nauseum. Um, it's going to be, it's going to be the five guys who are making that trip to Stanford on the line and their ability to be ready. I have faith that the five-star quarterback who did very well in spot duty as a freshman at Clemson is going to be ready to go. Um, but he needs the big boys protecting him to be ready as well. Hey, on, on that note, um, yeah. Sounds like uh, Kurt Anderson, um, who who was a analyst for Northwestern this year, is uh, going to get that that offensive line coaching job, uh, filling Adam Cushing's spot. We th- theorized that this was a, a likely scenario several weeks back. Um, Anderson, for those who don't know, he was the offensive line coach at Arkansas under Bielema for for two two seasons. Um. I think played at Michigan was involved in the development of Jake long at Michigan as uh, as an assistant way back in the day um, was in the NFL with the Buffalo bills uh, had a couple of, of pretty impressive seasons with, with uh, LaShawn McCoy running for them. Like th- this guy's legit. Um, and, and I'll just, I'll throw this out there because there were some other names in the mix. I think Al Netter, who's the offensive cord or who's I think the offensive coordinator at Yale Um Austin King, who is uh, the offense coordinator at Dayton, and then um, Joe Trippity, who is an offensive line coach, 
I forget, maybe at Northern Illinois, but so there were a number of other, other names in the mix. And this is not about those names. It's not about anybody who's on our current coaching staff. Uh, I'm, I'm quite pleased to see that Fitz decided to go with someone who was not a Northwestern alum. And that is, again, that is not a comment on any of the qualifications of those other offensive, offensive coaches or any of the, any of the current coaches who are NU alums. But when you look at some of the struggles that, say, USC is having, say, Miami is having, they insist on hiring Miami guys or USC guys. Or the, and the that, quote, the Michigan man. Yes, exactly. It, you, you create a system and a scenario where you're only employing people that have experienced your world and it becomes myopic and you don't get the new ideas and the fresh perspectives and the different approaches. And so... To me, that's a very healthy sign for this coaching staff that um, this was a guy, I, I, you know, he's familiar with the program, he's been with them for the last year, um, but that we gave him the job. I just, I like that. I like that aspect of it. He's got a great track record. Uh, Fitz was very complimentary of his ability as a teacher, as a tactician, et cetera. So uh, I really like this hire. It's, it's, it's a name that not a lot of people were talking about over the last few weeks, but um, it feels good. And Sam, I think you, you said that Cushing coached in the bowl game yes, yes. That, that that's right he he did stay on uh to coach the bowl game that was part of the deal um you know he started a little bit at eastern um but stayed on to coach the bowl game yeah so i i won't i won't ascribe any of the o-line performance in the bowl to to anderson yet but um i'm i'm hopeful for uh for what that will bring next year given the obvious focus, John, to your point, that's going to be on that position group. Uh, speaking of coaching, um, you know, I mentioned this earlier, but uh, let's briefly talk about um, the the national rumors and the national talk that, you know, Fitz was going to be talking to the Packers and, you know, that was officially shut down today. Although, you know, by from a text to Teddy Greenstein from uh, Fitz's agent uh, who said that, you know, Fitz had three NFL teams wanting to talk to him um but you know every all of that is shut down he's he's staying northwestern i'm i'm of the opinion that like people were talking about it but there was in my mind never any chance he was going to go to the packers um it's just too much has been you know he's been a part of too much he just got this brand new facility you know he's you know he is northwestern and you know if he wanted if if money was an issue, if he was wanting to coach in the NFL, he's had countless uh, opportunities to do so, uh, or to jump to a bigger program, or to go somewhere else. He's had opportunities, but the fact that he keeps saying no, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. Um, you know, this to me was never serious. It's it's fun to me and a couple things about that one. I remember you know when when it first came out about the Green Bay thing. We didn't all officially – I mean we all kind of thought the exact same thing you were just saying, Sammy. But it was good to officially get the word that he was feeling that way one more time. We got it indirectly through uh, Louis Vacare's recruiting piece via the four offensive line recruits incoming who were all like, this is what he's told us. And we were like, oh, OK, good. But Fish nev- uh, Fitz never officially made a comment on it one way or another. I kind of, you know, I think given everything we know about Fitz, the explanation is he was like, I said this once. I'm never saying it again. The more me, the more you ask me about it, the more stubborn I'm going to be about not saying anything <laughs> about it. But I will say, um, were we to theorize that there was an alternate solution, he sure did set himself up to give the most fantastic sound in the aftermath of that game, like the way it all came out to have not addressed it to the point that he, the first time he addresses it nationally or to anybody is on the podium after winning a bowl game. And he's positioned himself where he gets to say, hashtag go cats. I'm not going anywhere. was just such a beautiful moment that I think as Scuzz said, you know, especially if you're, you know, a few sheets into some scotch is just the absolute cherry on the Sunday of a fantastic night. Um, the second thing, which is just weird from an NFL perspective is I like Fitz has been a awesome college football coach. And I just don't understand 
why like Fitz is emblematic of how college is not like the pros in all of the best ways. One hundred percent. And the and the idea that someone would be like, yeah, this guy who's awesome at you know dealing with lesser you know presiding over a group that is good at developing you know three star to two star recruits and molding you know, incoming high school guys into fantastic young men and football players and develop them, developing them off the field as well as on the field is going to be the perfect X's and O's guy to run an NFL cutthroat franchise. I'm just like, I don't understand this at all. Like, I get that everyone follows the, sm- the smell of success, but it just never made sense to me. So, I, I mean, it was clearly related to Mark Murphy, right? former NU athletic director who is uh, in the front office with Green Bay. Um, the guy, is the he, guy is who, he their GM? Uh, he's the president. President, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like, clearly related to that. I think, you know, the NFL, I, I can't think of a coach who is super successful right now. Maybe, maybe Doug Peterson. Um, certainly, uh, who was the guy with, with the – Giants for all the year, those years is now in in Jacksonville. Coughlin, um, Coughlin, uh, but but there's not many like CEO type NFL head coaches at this stage uh, who are good. <laughs> there are some that are not good. I think you can look at like a Bill O'Brien or a Jason Garrett and um, you know scratch your head a little bit, but. The the other interesting wrinkle is that the soup du jour in the NFL right now is the offensive-minded head coach who, to your point, John, is not acting the CEO, is actively involved in diagramming and running and calling and designing the offense. It, it, you look at the Nagy Sean in McVay, Chicago. Yes, Sean McVay, Matt Nagy. Yep. McVay, Nagy. Uh, you look at what Frank Reich was uh, did in New York this year. Um, Reich was in Indy. Or, or yeah, sorry. Uh, who was the guy? Uh, Schumer uh, or Shermer? Yeah, yeah, Shermer in New York. Um, Reich in Indy. Like th- th- this is the direction it's going. You're going to see Mike Kafka probably become. He's he's probably going to become offensive coordinator for the Chiefs, and he's probably going to get a shot at, at a head coach job in a couple of years. Cliff Kingsbury is talked about being talked about as a head coach, the the offensive guru as head coach who can mentor and shepherd a talented, probably air raid trained quarterback from the college ranks. That's that is the soup du jour in the NFL. It's what is working. It's what is successful right now. Um, Fitz is not that, and that's and that's not an indictment or a criticism of Fitz. It's not who he is. You saw as, as as the season ended, and I think immediately like four or five head coaches got fired. Some of them one year into their tenure at, at, at I think both at Arizona and then how long had, had um, the Jets guy been there? Maybe three yeah, years. Yeah, Bolt was there for three. Vance Joseph was in Denver for two. I mean, Wilkes just for yeah. one. But these, these were defensive-minded head coaches that were given – you know, either young or or developing QB um, situations, and they completely whiffed. They 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 didn't have they didn't have the right skill set and the right focus uh, to move the franchise forward. And you look what's happening in Chicago. Bring in or or in in Los Angeles, you bring in an offensive guy, give him a great defensive coordinator who can just run that side of the ball. And you let him go. Now, could that work in the same way of like bringing in a great defensive head coach and an awesome offensive coordinator? I, I think the problem is that the quarterback position in in the NFL is even more important than it is in college, and it just it just drives the bus and all the all the everything right now. So uh, maybe with Aaron Rodgers, the Packers weren't as concerned about that. But I had a lot of the same questions um, as you did, John. At the same time, like I just, I've never gotten the impression that Fitz wants to wants to, to operate in that world. He's it, it, everything you hear him talk about. It's always about the development of of these young men that that come to Northwestern, and he wants to be involved in their education and their life and uh, figuring out, you know, not just their athletic success, but uh, but going way beyond that. That 
I, I, I've never talked to him about it, but every time he speaks or, or talks in, even in post game press conferences, like it's, it's so clear that that floats his boat. That's what he cares about. And you don't get to do that in the NFL. It's not about that. And he's, he's never exhibited. I'll say the ego that, uh, that, a, that a guy like Chip Kelly or even Brian Kelly, potentially who's, who's being talked about as an NFL head coach um, have exhibited about getting to that next, that next level or that next step. Like he's not, he's not a program jumper. So um, this is not a surprise yeah, it, to me that, especially when you, you know, look at, you know, what, Gary Barnett has always said to him is Barnett regretted leaving Northwestern to go to Colorado. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he'd been at Northwestern for seven years and then, you know, had, had this, you know, great opportunity at Colorado where he'd coached before. And, you know, he regretted making that move. Um, You know, Fitz at Northwestern will be here as long as he wants to be here, period. I mean, we're not like Fitz is not going to get fired at Northwestern ever at this point. It's just not going to happen, you know. I mean, bar, barring something like something catastrophic truly, off like, the field, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, some massive scandal which would blow all of our minds if that ever happened uh, to Fitz. But you know, you go to the NFL and you're looking at coaches, you know, getting fired after one year. Two, I mean, coaches don't last more than two or three years because if you're not winning immediately, that's it. So he's got right. he's got job stability. You know, he, money is not what drives him. I mean, he's making a lot of money. He's, he's he's doing just fine for himself. But, you know, getting that $10 million a year, $15 million, you know, whatever massive amounts. I mean, like I said earlier, he's had opportunities. You know, Michigan, Penn State all wanted to talk to him uh, a few years back. And he's you know, always saying no, no. And they were probably throwing more money than he's making at Northwestern. And he said, no, this is where he wants to be. He's from Chicago. His family is here. Um, you know, he he is Northwestern, and he will be here as long as he wants to be here. Hashtag go cats, bitch. <laughs> Hashtag go cats. I mean, that the volatility of the NFL, you talk about it suits an itinerant guy like Jim Harbaugh, who, again, let's wait and see if he's the head coach at Michigan next year, because that's by no means a guarantee. <laughs> Um, I swear, you know, when he's, Florida, nah, was, no, come on, man. He's, he wants to take one swing at Ryan day. Maybe, he, but you know, I mean, yeah, Stephen Ross, you, right? Stephen Ross, the owner of the Miami dolphins is a Michigan guy. You know, he and Harbaugh go pretty far back and Miami's got an opening, but, but who, who cared, who cared? He had an opening when, when Harbaugh was hired at Michigan too. And he, he almost, he helped broker the deal to get Harbaugh to Michigan. He cares more about the Michigan Wolverines than he does his NFL franchise. I, I mean, I mean, my point is just that like Harbaugh is not one to stay. I mean, Harbaugh's always got his eye on the next thing, right? And and he's at Michigan now, but I think everyone agrees it's like only a matter of time. And and you know, it's like guys like that can handle, like you were saying. I mean, the NFL is ridiculous. You can go and get fired after like two years, and if you're a guy who had indefinite job security at your old job i mean like how ask steve spurrier how like the washington redskins worked out you know i mean it's like you you know fitz is the guy who's smart enough to realize that he's in the perfect spot and he's not going anywhere and now he gets to tell recruits or whoever else yeah the green bay packers wanted me michigan wanted me tons of people wanted me i want to be a cat and so should you We have a lot of off season to to keep talking about this, and I I, I want to save kind of the the recap and you know the the our annual farewells of the seniors. I want to save that for uh, you know a little bit down the road. Uh, do want to you know mention we did get a an email from uh, from Adam uh, who sent into westlawparrots at gmail dot com. Um, you know he he's been listening to the pod for a while. Uh, very excited about next year and wanted to talk a little bit about recruiting. Um, you know, Adam, we, Adam, it's your lucky day, buddy. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, um, John has been working on uh, a, a big piece about recruiting um, that you know we're looking to get up on the site here in the next few days. But you know, I, I think Adam's point is, you know, as far as what the potential for Northwestern recruiting looks like, um, you know, he's comp- he's looking at Stanford coming in at like twentieth overall in national rankings, and we're in the forties. And, you know, bef- before we, you know, really dive into to your piece, John, um, you know, the the national rankings are always going to be a little bit flawed when it comes to a team like Northwestern. It, it, 
is really based on class size. We don't have classes more than 18, 19 guys. Um, you know, you look at the, I mean, even Stanford has a bigger class size, but like Alabama, who's bringing in 25 to 30 recruits every year because they're, you know, half the team is uh, going to the NFL early. But that, you know, in addition to all the five stars that Saban is bringing into Alabama, but, you know, that, that skews these, um, the, the rating system uh, more towards teams with a bigger class. Northwestern just doesn't have these massive recruiting classes. So, you know, even though, you know, you look at, you know, this incoming class, everyone is a three-star. Um, and then with Hunter Johnson as, as the five-star uh, QB transferring in. But, well, well and this, is, this is why I always look at average star rating, not, not rank. Um, and when you do that, so so if you look at rank, Northwestern was ranked 11th in the Big Ten this year. But when you look at average star rank, Northwestern is tied for seventh with Purdue, Michigan State, and Iowa. That feels about right. Um, we've been a little bit lower. We've been around like ninth uh, a couple of the last couple of years. We've been up higher around like sixth or even fifth a couple of the last uh, last years. That our average star rank is important. It's also important to understand what we're doing with it. Um, development is a really huge component of, of college football. Um, I mean, the, the, the equation in college football recruiting is big, but development is huge as well. And then you've got to have right. The, the coaching and the X's and O's to, to execute. So, um, the star rating in and of itself, you know, part of, part of Northwestern strategy is they recruit, they have a smaller pool because of academics, certainly. Um, they also target an even smaller pool of guys uh, that they think are likely to take a Northwestern offer that they see as a cultural fit for the team um, and that they've seen at one of their camps. Uh, they, they want players that they've evaluated in person and that they understand how coachable those guys are and the ways they can develop them, etc. So... As a result, I think Northwestern probably takes more chances on, on a, a, I mean, not a two-star, but like on some of these three-star guys that aren't even getting seen elsewhere. And one of the, one of the, I'll say, drawbacks of the star system in college recruiting is that it often relies; these sites often rely on how many schools are recruiting these dudes how many offers they have, what sort of offers they're getting. If Northwestern gets in on a guy early because he was at one of their camps and he doesn't go to, to like one of the big Nike camps or he's not getting talked to by Notre Dame or Michigan, etc., he might not get a, a higher star rating, even though if he even though he might deserve it because he's not on the radar. Um so that 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 becomes a factor as well. I you know in addition to the star rating we talk a lot about when we when we get guys who have offers at other schools as, as a barometer of the talent we're bringing in. And I think, you know, Fitz, Fitz will, will say like stars don't matter and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Stats are for losers, etc. I'm not going that far, but you do have to read between the lines a little bit on this stuff. Um, because the ranks to your point, Sam, and even the star ratings can be a little bit misle- misleading. For sure. And I mean, you guys both teed me up. And again, Adam and everyone else we were alluding to earlier is <clears throat> I'm, I'm about to jump on the back this massive, this massive deep dive. Um, we're calling it the developmental deep dive um, into um, all the different positions, the way we develop ha- talent within those positions and how effectively we develop talent within those positions relative to recruiting, relative to who is a big recruit, who is a little recruit. How did they all turn out? Um, as right now, it looks like it's about 11 different pieces. I think the plan we're looking at and, and keep a lookout for it because shortly after this pod got, comes up within a day or two, we're going to start dropping it. We're either going to go one part a day or a couple car- parts a day. We'll probably do it over one pod cycle, over a couple pod cycles. And then, you know, after you guys have had a chance to really read it all, we can discuss it on the pod in depth. What I'll allude to saying is, um, off the top, basically the idea is we were kind of wondering, and a lot of this started when Adam Cushing took the the Eastern Illinois job, and we were kind of talking about it and, and being like, well, you know, we all kind of feel like the offensive line has been, you know, arguably the weak link of the team for a while now. Um, but you know, what can we really point to? 
Um, is it because of, again, to Adam's point, is it because we're not putting enough stars in in the recruiting? Or is it another issue? Is it more of like a development? Is it more about getting the best out of the guys at that position? And what we did is we did this massive deep dive into all the positions over um, a period of 2010 to 2017. We looked at every single player in these classes um, and we issued a grade to all of these different players. And again, any grade we're talking about, we're viewing obviously is going to be a little bit subjective. Like our goal, we're not showing you all these individual grades. The goal is not to look at player X and, you know, we say player X gets a B plus. You say he gets an A minus. And then we go like first take on it for an hour. That's not the goal. <laughs> uh, the goal is that we figure we watch a lot of football. We can look at these guys and we can say, okay, between how big of a recruit this guy was, was he a big recruit and then came in and performed at a certain level? Okay, well, that's worth this grade. Was he not a big recruit and then came in and did not perform or did not play a lot? Well, you know, based on low expectations coming in and a level of performance. Well, okay. well, what is that grade worth? What about a guy who's a big recruit and comes in and despite being a big recruit, does not perform or even reach the field for the Cats? What kind of grade is that worth? What about the flip side? What about a guy? I'll just throw out a name. Uh, Let's say a guy who let's just say a guy who's known mainly as a piano player when he comes into Northwestern and pays to go to school and then ends up catching Thanksgiving Day touchdown passes from Drew Brees uh, for the New Orleans Saints. What kind of grade does that guy get? Hint, it's a very good grade. Um, and then we added all this up, grouped it by position, grouped it over subsequent five-year periods, right? So in any five-year period, in theory, all the guys on scholarship then could be able to play. Now, obviously, it doesn't really work out that way, more complex, but it's a way to, to zoom back, right, and say, okay, so here's everybody who in theory could have been on the team then. How were these guys developed? How big recruits were they coming in? What was their end level of performance? And then we can really evaluate it. And again, I'm not going to step on all the individual specifics of it. We really want you guys to read it. We're going to be releasing an intro and then position by position with all the rankings, the way we compiled the data, the way we grouped things. You guys can see it all, your thoughts on it, and then we can go over all of it on subsequent pods. But one thing I'll say to Adam's point that certainly became apparent relative to recruiting is different positions operate in different ways. And I will just throw out one position. The only real position, and you could put defensive line in this too, but the only real position at Northwestern where you see a direct correlation across a lot of guys between big recruits and great position is safety. Northwestern recruits a ton of awesome players at safety, and they play awesome. At every other position, it's more complicated. Um, and, I, I, you know, again, we all – the part of the reason we're starting this is let me just say, um, again, without stepping on it, that to, to your point, Adam, about the recruiting and looking to pick the recruiting grades up – a lot of times what you'll see is some of the positions where they're the biggest problems, it's not getting the big recruits. It's what happens after those recruits have shown up that becomes a little bit of the problem. Um, and I think when you guys read the individual position-specific stuff, you'll see one position group for sure where you'll look and you'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, you know, I thought that we need better recruits here or better development. I'm seeing it. And then there will be another position group for sure where you're going to look and you're going to go, oh, wow, I didn't realize that this is the way it was going on. And now, you know, your my eyes are open because ours certainly were. So, again, you're absolutely right. We're always looking to meet that Stanford threshold of seeing a few more three, a few more four stars on every given recruiting class. But certain positions i mean you'll see there's one position group where we're minting nfl players out of two-star guys so the it's all about getting the right fit of guy at that position and then developing as much as we can but again that's to tease the piece it's going to start to roll out over the next couple of days you guys will all be able to consume it day by day and then reread pieces and over the next couple of months and etc and then We'll talk about it all in depth and details. You guys can send in your comments, 
and we'll go over all of it. But it's just it's great that you sent in that email, Adam, because we've got this big thing teed up. We know you guys love to talk about recruiting as much as we do. And something's got to get us from here until the summer previews uh, and, <laughs> and, not to, and not to step on a little bit. But uh, eh, maybe Hoop's not going to carry the weight this year. So well, I, mean, uh, that, that, I mean, let's not, you know go too deep into the doom and gloom of hoops. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yesterday, 81 to 55 Michigan state domination. They're good. They're, Michigan state's real, real good at basketball. I mean, the fact that our big 10 season so far, we've played uh, we played Indiana, Michigan, and Michigan state, you know, three teams all ranked in the top 25, um, you know, Michigan and Michigan state, both in the top 10. It's been a rough schedule to open up with. And, you know, the, there is definitely room for improvement, absolutely. Uh, but I'm, I'm not ready to, to mail in this season yet, and not by any stretch of the imagination. Well, I, th- I think I think the one last thing to, to throw out on the recruiting piece as well is uh, the four stars are obviously missing from our from our class this year. You know, last year as well. If you look at the most successful recruiting classes that Northwestern has brought in from a star perspective. It is definitely in the years immediately following the Gator Bowl. And that's, you know, that's where Thorson and Jackson and uh, a lot of these other four-star guys that have, that have done really well on the team came from. This has been the most successful season since that year, bar none. And it'll be very interesting to see what Fitz and crew are able to do with it on the recruiting front, both, um, as as they kind of close out, do we have any open scholarships in this class? I don't think we do. I don't think so, but it's, it's kind of up in the air because we talked about um, a couple guys who I think there are, there are one or two guys out there in the ether who, if they were like, hey, I want to be a cat, will be like, yeah, okay, here's a scholarship. Yeah, so I mean, like, there might be a couple last ones, but it, it's going to be the 2020 class that is the, the interesting one we'll have our eyes on uh, to see how things progress. Um, and... I, you know, you you got to think based on on past history, but Northwestern has a really strong season, finishes in a really strong, um, you know, noticeable nationally public publicized way that uh, that it bears fruit on the recruiting trail, and it would be it'd be hard to imagine that not happening this time. So that certainly could help boost uh, the the class rankings and the average stars. Um, in the 2020 and 2021 classes. Absolutely. And, and on that note, again, we're throwing the ball to you guys. It's going to be, it's all going to be out there. We're rolling it out, consume it. There's going to be a lot there. It will take time. And for a bunch of you guys, I know you'll just be like, plug it into my veins and that's great. That's why we do this stuff. So, um, it'll, it'll be coming, um, consume it, drink it in and, uh, and we'll be going over it down the road. So let's go ahead and put a bow on this one. Um, go ahead and leave it there for this week. Uh, head to our website, westlotpirates.com, where you can leave comments and questions. Find us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter, at Westlot Pirates. You can call our voicemail line, 847-231-2287. That's 847-231-CATS. And email the show, westlotpirates at gmail.com. Tune in next time as we give our visceral and statistical views on Northwestern athletics and look for us in the west lot of Ryan Field flying the red pirate flag because we give no quarter, especially the fourth. For John Lacombe, Narek Skazboy, I'm Sam Walter. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.